.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. everybody i'm nico i'm kevo and we're here to ask ourselves the eternal question what the fuck are they avenging yeah we are on the sixth episode of mcu we are here to talk about the avengers the movie that changed everything yeah the thing that all this has been building up towards so far it's really funny because i remember when the film came out and i remember thinking it cannot possibly be as good as the early reviews it just cannot possibly be as good as the early reviews there's too much positive buzz and we've been dreaming of of Joss Whedon helming a comic book movie like The Avengers Our Entire Lives, and evidently he had done some amount of rewrite help on Thor and Captain America, and it becomes immediately evident what rewrite help he did on those things, because they're all of the things that set up The Avengers, and somehow The Avengers is a culmination, and it brings an Iron Man, and... Honestly, and I'll say it right up front, I think the worst I would probably say about The Avengers sometimes is that it's so perfect it's almost boring. I would say there's some slow parts. I would also say that Joss Whedon made some very odd direction choices at times, and there are some weird close-ups on some weird moments, but other than the fact that I don't think anything is really perfect like that, I just do think it's about one of the best superhero movies ever. Yeah, like, because no, no piece of art is perfect, of course, but it's this is pretty... I have very few complaints overall about this film. Uh, a lot of notes, but not really any complaints. And one of the things that's magical about this movie, and I do mean magical, seriously, is that because the Marvel Cinematic Universe is this ongoing creature that continues to evolve, we've seen these projects change the way we view Avengers, and we've seen Avengers change the way we view other projects. In fact, one of the main things we're going to be talking about in this episode is the viability of a retcon that Marvel put on their website. Yeah, just this last week. We're going to take a look at that in a moment. But first, let's talk a little bit more about the Avengers. My expectations going into it, your expectations going into it. I personally had felt like the movie could not be as good as I remembered. Ultimately, it probably had a few more flaws than I remember, but the payoff moments made me happier. And I felt really, I felt fulfilled by the viewing experience in a way that I maybe didn't by the Hulk, Iron Man 2, even parts of Thor. Yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, one of the things in my research of this episode that I came up across is that Joss did a lot, a lot, a lot of drafts of this film as they were heading toward it and weren't really sure what they were going to do. There was a little while where they didn't know if they were going to have Scarlett Johansson, so that's why he wrote some drafts that had the Wasp. There were a lot of different versions of this film, and I think watching it... I saw it in a positive way. I think they were able to get to the best version of so many scenes because Joss had to think about it so many different ways. Absolutely. I think the dialogue from so many of the characters is so consistently strong in part because Joss envisioned these characters in so many different iterations and so many different configurations with each other. And that allowed him to visualize and picture the way these characters would interact with each other in different scenarios. Those different options and different opportunities in storytelling, I believe, led to the best possible script in the end. There are times it does feel like it's cobbled together from many different stories, but I actually think that is one of its strengths. I never felt like the Avengers was dragging 
because it was pulling together so many threads. The only times the Avengers really dragged for me were the times where Joss Whedon fell into exposition hell, which has always been one of his follies. There's no point that I really feel the movie falls apart, which so many of these superhero movies have that moment where you're like, is this even the movie that I started in on? Yeah. I feel like the Avengers keeps a consistent tone throughout. It has strong building moments. And I think on this watch through, we both found a number of times where we were able to justify moments that people might have called into question originally, specifically the Black Widow. We were able to find how clearly Joss mapped and plotted her course Throughout the film, Joss has a really strong method of creating context for anything a character might do by putting in a line here or there. Oftentimes they go unnoticed, but on your 80th watch of this movie, you pick up on a bunch of stuff. Yeah, definitely. So, Kevo, as always, the thing you give us that no one else can do for us. Kevo, can you take us on the BTS of the MCU? Well, there are a few quadrants I don't have as much to say about this time around. Alan Silvestri makes his return as composer immediately after Captain America. You know, he's he's just one of those legendary dudes. He's done so many things. Like I said last episode, Back to the Future, he did the first two Predator films. A lot of really iconic work, but nothing really as big as someone like a John Williams. So I thought it was really cool that he is the person who came up with the theme for the Avengers. That's a really nice person to put with that. And that theme is such an iconic part of this film. When you talk about movies that have soundtracks or scores that define them, you think about Star Wars, you think about Pulp Fiction. Now, I won't say the soundtrack helped define the Avengers because I do think it was a lot of generic rock, but for certain, the score, that Avengers theme goes down as one of the classic themes of the last 20 years. Oh, I completely agree. The Marvel Cinematic Universe relies on its score to help convey a lot of feelings. When you're talking about superheroes, a lot of this can seem silly and over the top, but the majesty of that bum, 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 you're there. It's kind of the way the Pirates theme really worked for the Pirates franchise. It helped sell the magic of it. And considering that Robert Downey Jr. took the role of Iron Man to have his own version of Captain Jack Sparrow, it really drives the point home that this was out of the gate trying to create a franchise. Yeah, I definitely agree. And there's a lot of works in Alan Silvestri's catalog that speak a lot to what you're referring to. Uh, he also did the themes for the entire Night at the Museum franchise. Even things like doing both Grumpy Old Men films and both Father of the Bride, that suggests a familiarity with franchises and working with themes. The cinematographer, Seamus McGarvey, hasn't really done a lot that I would call super notable. Some good stuff. High Fidelity back in 2000. Along Came Polly, obviously a classic. Uh, he did The Greatest Showman last year and did the Chris Hemsworth film Bad Times at El Royale from this year. I didn't even hear of that. Yeah, I am only familiar with it, I think, because of, like, Facebook ads. It's directed by Drew Goddard, who works with Joss Whedon, so that's pretty cool. But otherwise, not really a lot to say about this guy, obviously. Didn't they work together on The Cabin in the Woods? Yeah, that's a really good point. I completely forgot Drew Goddard was the director and co-writer with Joss Whedon of Cabin in the Woods. So they would have known each other from back then. So it's another funny connection like that. I believe Joss Whedon had worked with Chris Hemsworth on Cabin in the Woods just before recommending him for Thor to Kenneth Branagh. So it's sort of like a big full circle thing. Good for them still working together. Yeah, and then that brings us to the man himself, who I know we have tons, both of us, to say about Joss Whedon, who is both the scriptwriter and director. A story credit for 
the Avengers also goes to Zach Penn, the scriptwriter for The Incredible Hulk. That's kind of a funny story, actually. Zach Penn was hired to write the script for The Avengers back in 2006 and then was replaced with Joss Whedon, who was particularly scathing about Zach Penn's draft that he had been working on all those years and working threads from the films through. I was really blown away by that when I discovered just how openly hateful Joss Whedon was about the draft. Apparently, Zach Penn was really cool about it, though. He understood, and, you know, he was being replaced by a different writer. He got it. Instead, he is quoted as saying, It's not like when you're replaced by the lead actor, in reference to Ed Norton taking over the script of The Incredible Hulk. So I guess there's just biting comments to go around when it comes to these films, huh? Yeah, I think that's really interesting because now we're presenting that argument from another point of view. In the Hulk episode, we kind of presented it as, oh, poor Ed Norton. And in this one, we're presenting it as, oh, poor Zach, but no one's ever said poor Zach Penn before. Yeah, exactly. Even Zach Penn isn't saying poor Zach Penn here. The truth is I don't have a whole lot to say about Joss Whedon that hasn't already been said. For those who are unfamiliar, Joss Whedon is the creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's been off Angel, Firefly, Dollhouse, as well as a number of other projects. I love his work. That's it. I love his work. I think he's a lot of fun. I think he is responsible for an entire movement in language. Joss Whedon's work hasn't always aged well. In fact, Kevo and I have done a series of panels, Buffy at 20, at different Comic Cons throughout the country. Yeah. Talking about Buffy and some of the ways it's aged brilliantly and some of the ways it's aged kind of poorly. For the most part, Joss's work holds up. It runs into some pratfalls, but who doesn't? Kevo, what about you? I know Joss Whedon and our love of Joss is one of the things that brought us together early on as both friends and writers. I absolutely recognize a lot of the problematic things that he has clearly presented. I don't find some of his later work as problematic as others do. There are things that we'll get into at Age of Ultron that we'll discuss more there. I don't think that he's done anything significant since Age of Ultron that I can really express how I feel about him currently. There's a meme going around Facebook right now, and it's three fists connecting together, and it's RuPaul, Joss Whedon, and J.K. Rowling, and it's this thing about people who used to be really progressive and intersectional and now are completely outdated and kind of just need to stop. And I really agree with that. I think he can still yet get back to what he once was and help be more progressive, but it would require work. Yeah. The last quick thing that I wanted to draw to attention before we get into the discussion of the Avengers, to help underline how far we have come, I came across a snippet about the original announcement from Marvel Studios about its first tentpoles back in April of 2006, when it was Iron Man directed by Jon Favreau, Captain America written by David Self, Ant-Man written and directed by Edgar Wright, Nick Fury written by Andrew Marlowe, Thor, written by Mark Protosevich, and The Incredible Hulk, written by Zach Penn. Now, a lot of those names are probably familiar. David Self actually did end up contributing to the Captain America script, even though he did not write the final draft. Protosevich also was involved in the story behind Thor. For those of you who might already know, Edgar Wright actually is one of the screenwriters for Ant-Man, which, at the point of this announcement, was nine years from its release, and at the point of this film being released, still about three. So it's really strange to see that a writer has been attached to a project for that long. And the final thing to draw attention to is the Nick Fury film that was originally in there. 
Uh, for those of you who don't know, screenwriter Andrew Marlowe wrote the script for Air Force One and is the creator of the ABC show Castle. I actually don't remember at any point being aware of a Nick Fury film being announced, but the further I digged, yeah, that actually was a thing for a little while there. That's crazy. I don't remember anything about a Nick Fury movie at all. So that's just the way this all kind of came together. Nick Fury definitely had a much larger presence early on than he does by the end. Yeah, and I guess a lot of what was going to be a Nick Fury film was probably spread throughout the other films. I'm not sure. But yeah, that was originally the tentpoles. And if you've been following along with our behind the scenes, you can see how much these films, their creative teams, where they went, what characters were going to be used, have really changed since the beginning. And now here we are at the first real culmination of of these films, The Avengers. From the second the movie starts, it's a little bit much, to be honest. Like, I kind of block this space sequence out every time. I don't remember it's there. Oh, the opening monologue? Yeah, it's a little bit like that opening scene from the Power Rangers movie. It's, 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 it's weird. But you kind of need it, unfortunately. Otherwise, the ending doesn't make any sense. But I'm already talking about the tag way before I need to be talking about the tag. So let's wind it back to when the movie actually begins a little bit. I love starting with Coulson, Hill, and Fury. I think those are really important binding elements that make this movie a little bit different from the other films. The other films focus on singular superheroes, sometimes with a, you know, tag-along pal. But this is the first time they're saying, hey, there's an entire universe of characters that are unique to the Avengers. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, while these are breakout characters from S.H.I.E.L.D., S.H.I.E.L.D. itself as a unit is what is the hero. So it's important that we had not just Nick Fury, but subordinates under Nick Fury to represent S.H.I.E.L.D. as an institution for us. I agree. And then we get Selvig, which is such a great touch because I think Selvig was one of the standout characters of Thor. I also think it was very smart to leave him possessed under Loki's control. I agree and I like Selvig a lot. I honestly think a flaw is I didn't care about Selvig the most out of all the Thor characters. So, and to just get slightly ahead of ourselves, him and Hawkeye being Loki's hostages didn't really do as much for me emotionally as I would have liked. It's still a character I cared a lot about. He was the most important, the most significant, the perfect character for them to choose. And I love that Selvig is there because it does help bring up the Loki correlation. But before Loki comes in, we get maybe the worst part of the film for me in a lot of ways. The <laughs> Hawkeye introduction is just so stupid. Where is he? The hawk? Oh, he's up in his nest, laying an egg, being a mama bird, picking its sticks. Chewing up food and feeding it to the smaller shield agents. Just throwing it up right into their mouth. Arrows, ah! Well, I and, and then it turns out that he has kids, so actually that's kind of funny that we're comparing him to a mama bird. I don't disagree, but this introduction is really terrible and it's really embarrassing and it makes me really angry. I don't even know... I don't remember them referring to him as Hawkeye once in this film, and I can't think of how many times he's been referred to that codename in the franchise. So all of the, oh, he's a bird stuff, like, it's just weird. We have actually stated over and over again that we find that a number of these films only mention characters' names once, if at all. I don't believe Stane's armor is referred to as the Ironmonger on the screen. I think that... Thor's mom isn't referred to as Frigga until maybe the second film. Yeah. There's a number of characters that are referred to by name once, and sometimes I don't think some of them are even referred to by name, and I think that's a huge oversight on the part of these films. Anyway, Hawkeye comes in, and he's kind of got this, like, age-old wisdom out of nowhere. 
he brings to mind something that none of the scientists have thought to mention to Nick Fury, and that's just kind of dumb. Yeah, I really hate those moments. Like I mentioned last episode with Howard Stark being so blown away by this tech. Like, isn't this supposed to be your field? Why does this guy who's a marksman know more than the scientists or have this revelation? I completely agree. It's it's mind-numbing that he's the first one to say that something might come through the other side of a door. And then it happens five seconds later. And don't get me wrong, I understand that movies need to be about this kind of timing, but oh man. Now this brings us to the thing that we need to talk about, probably first and foremost. Marvel recently announced that Loki in The Avengers was mind-controlled by the Scepter the same way he was mind-controlling others. The Scepter, given to him by Thanos corrupted him and fueled his hatred for humans and his brother Thor. I really had a huge problem with this the minute I heard it. I did not agree with it, and I was made very angry by it. However, watching this film, within one second, Loki looks and sounds off. It's really notable. Yeah, it's subtle, but it is noticeable that his demeanor is a lot sharper his makeup is a little edgier and darker he seems a little more gaunt it's there and i actually do have a number of complaints about the makeup in this film specifically captain america's makeup yeah i noticed that too he frequently looks like casper the friendly super soldier and i don't know what to do with it he looks like a disney prince version of his character and i don't mean that as a compliment i completely agree but to jump back to the film where we're at Loki appears, and he starts blasting people and possessing people, and he's here to enslave all of Earth, burdened with glorious purpose. The movie gets going on a big action sequence. I think that's really smart. A number of these movies start a little slow. Avengers just starts out the gate. Yeah, I definitely agree. I enjoyed the action of it. I think once... Everything gets on the move because I wasn't as engaged with these characters as I mentioned earlier. The action stuff is just sort of action, so this was definitely the thing I used as a pee break the second time we saw this after an all-day marathon. But it's still fun, it's cool, it's a really exciting way to open up the film and a really interesting way to start without having basically a single Avenger that we've met before in it. I also really appreciated getting to see Maria Hill be part of the action early on. I love Maria Hill in the comics. It was great to see Colby Smulders kick ass as her. You know, she was in the middle of a high-speed chase against a super god. We're not talking about a woman who was daintily just sort of driving a car in an action sequence. She was on the move to try and save the world right away, and that's what's important to me, that we see these female characters immediately engaged in the same level of superheroics their male counterparts are. Which I guess brings us then smash cut directly into the Black Widow doing the same thing. Oh man, that Black Widow sequence, it was the kind of thing where I said out loud to myself, yep, this is what we were owed. This is Natasha. It's the right kind of balance of seriousness and humor, strength, spy cunning. She's intellectual, she's strong, she's sexy, and I don't feel that her sexuality is exploited here. I have some questions about why she's in as little clothing as she's in, but ultimately they don't hurt her efficacy in the scene. I think there's an argument to be made that that sort of dressing down is meant to suggest vulnerability, which, surprise, she doesn't have. But there is still something to be said for the over-sexualization of female superheroes, for sure. Now, there's actually something really important about this scene that I didn't realize until this watch, and I feel kind of maybe dumb for it, but the point where she says to Coulson, this moron's giving me everything, 
That's really important because I've always kind of questioned how later on in the film, Natasha is able to extract the information she's able to extract from Loki, but it really ties in that here she's able to get that from people. That's who she is. Yeah, a lot of people have said that she seems sort of weak in the interrogation scene later with Loki, but I think this shows how much of an act all of that is and how much of a professional she is. I think one of the things that really works for her, especially here, is that they gave her something to fight for. She's fighting to defend Barton over and over again, because that's how they get her to come in from this mission. She has to save Barton, and she's told to go after the Hulk while Coulson goes after Stark. And I think that's kind of interesting, because either one of them could have gone after Stark at this point. They both have a strong relationship with Tony, and I enjoy scenes with both of them with Tony. Yeah, that's really true. I hadn't thought about that. Another thing I hadn't considered until this watch was the fact that Coulson says at the top, we have eyes on this building and we can basically nuke the whole thing. They can extract Natasha easily. This was how Natasha chose to leave this scene was by knocking out all of these bad guys. I do enjoy that. And it does lend credibility to the way she's able to handle herself in the fight sequences later on. It's really easy to dismiss Hawkeye and Black Widow for both being very human, but they smartly made Hawkeye a villain very quickly. By giving Hawkeye this like villainous edge for a little while, we're able to see the level of damage he can do because he's unbridled. There's nothing holding him back. It was a really great way to give us a little insight into these two characters and justify how they're able to hold down with Thor and Captain America. The next scene is actually a funny scene for Kevo and I. Now, when they initially announced Mark Ruffalo as Ed Norton's replacement at SDCC, the reception was not the warmest. So at NYCC, they attempted to gain the favor of fandom by showing us a clip of Ruffalo as Bruce Banner. An edited down version of this clip was what they showed. And honestly, I do think the scene holds up. There's the great jump scare moment. We see a lot of Black Widow being smart and cunning. She shows humanity. She shows intelligence. There's humor. It unfortunately does play a little bit too much like the previous scene, actualized, but I'm okay with it. Yeah, I see what you're saying there. I was really intrigued watching this by the threads. It feels like it's already building for things we're going to see in Age of Ultron, There's a moment when Bruce says we don't always get what we want while he's playing with a swinging crib. And we know that part of Bruce and Natasha's story in Age of Ultron is them lamenting not being able to have normal lives and a family the way that they wish that they could. So I don't know if that's purposeful seating or just something that worked out very well for the films, but it was a fun little moment to catch. I also enjoyed her saying that there's no one who knows gamma radiation the way Banner does. I just like these little touches that say it's not just because you're a brilliant scientist and we need a smarty like you. No, it's that the Tesseract leaves a small trace of gamma radiation behind. But unfortunately, it's too low a level of gamma radiation for them to track. But they believe that Banner, the expert on the subject, just might be able to. Yeah, and it's another reason why they don't just want him because he's the Hulk. They're trying to bring him in for his mind as much as his potential superheroic abilities. Now, the next scene really, I'm, this is part of why when Kevo said earlier that one of the things he felt this movie suffered from was a little too much perfection. I do not agree. I actually think all of this security war council stuff looks terrible, looks small, looks silly really pulls me out of the film, always slows it down, doesn't make Fury seem powerful. 
I actually think this very TV-styled shadow government sequence makes it look like they ran out of budget and needed to shoehorn these scenes in. Yeah, I wish I could disagree, but I really don't love the... I can't think what they're called. There's some kind of tribunal or something. Yeah, they're... They're, they're not good. They're not, it's really annoying. It's, it, like you said, depowers Fury a lot in the eyes of the audience, which I think Joss Whedon needed as a plot device, but then ultimately just makes him look very weak and powerless. And part of that is important. We needed to see the characters grow and be faced with challenges, but it doesn't always play the way I think Whedon hoped it would. When we get to the Captain America scene, I'm pretty happy with it. I love the Cap scene. I love seeing Cap well on those bags and the quick condensed version of his origin. What's funny is he gets a condensed version of his story, but nobody else does. It's almost like they said, maybe less people saw Captain America or something. Like their international audiences, where Captain America didn't play as well. Okay, and my thought was going to be we actually get more information about who everyone else is. We don't really talk a lot about what Cap's abilities, origins, or intentions are throughout the film other than do-gooder from World War II. We talk a lot about Thor, we talk a lot about Hulk, we talk a lot about Iron Man and all of their powers and abilities. But we don't ever talk about their origins. We don't see... Tony in the desert. We don't see Thor as a kid learning to wield the hammer. We don't see the experiment. We don't hear about the experiment. We just hear that the Bifrost is broken once. We never hear anything about War Machine. I really do feel like this scene was included because Captain America failed to make money in overseas audiences the way the other films were able to because calling it Captain America hurt the brand in a way overseas. I could see that. The scene between... Fury and Cap builds on some threads laid out at the very end of Captain America, and I enjoyed that about it, but ultimately, these scenes of extensive talking over and over again pile up here and there. Yeah, I'd actually forgotten. Technically, there was a tag at the end of Captain America, the first Avenger, but part of the reason we forgot was because that tag was literally compiled from parts of this scene. It's a 30-second cutdown, basically, that then shows flashes of the other Avengers, Like we'd said, it was basically a glorified trailer, and I hadn't even remembered that this was part of it until it started playing. The scene ends on a really weird note that you should have left it in the ocean moment really doesn't feel to me like something Cap would say. If Cap knew there was an incredibly powerful, dangerous weapon buried at the bottom of the ocean, and that a man like Schmidt's successors could possibly stand a chance of finding it, it just was too flippant. It goes in with the other moment that I really hate. Later on in the film, where Cap challenges Tony to put the suit on and go for a couple of rounds, which just doesn't feel like Eve to me. I really don't like those two moments, but that's just me. I definitely have stuff to say on the second moment later. This first one, I do definitely agree. It's very sour. You could argue that this is Cap fresh out of the ice and sad that everything he knew is gone, but... Then it becomes the thing that we talked about several episodes with Sports Night, and Casey is acting weird. I don't appreciate this hero starting so out of character. I believe you said something to me earlier in your research about how Avengers was produced before Thor or Captain America were released. Yes, so the producers didn't know how audiences were going to react to it as they were making this film. 
So the producers were kind of trying to make this in a vacuum in some ways. They really didn't understand how audiences were going to react to all of these storylines coming together. Maybe that's part of the magic that made Avengers work. I think that's also why we see a harder Loki throughout this film than we tend to see throughout the rest of the MCU. They didn't really know how fans were going to react to Loki as a character. Loki is most majorly a villain in the Marvel Comics universe, but he also has a more sympathetic side, obviously, over the last 50 years. And that's the side it seems that audiences reacted the most to, so they had to find a way to walk back a lot of the crazy stuff he does here. And a lot of what he does is just so far beyond the actions he takes in Thor. So more and more as we're discussing this film, I really do see where they might just be able to get away with this ridiculous retcon. I do, too. I definitely do, too. Well, that, I think, brings us to Iron Man's debut. Yeah, Steve says the thing about you should have left it in the ocean, and then we cut to Stark Tech in the ocean, which is such a Joss Whedon transition. He loves doing cute little things like that. And it's a really fun cut because I like that Tony comes in doing something. Tony doesn't show up being Tony Stark in a suit, blah, blah, blah. He shows up being Iron Man doing something proactive. Tony is focused on creating a sustainable energy that helps power the city and maybe even the whole world. One of the things that S.H.I.E.L.D. says is that they believe the Tesseract could be a source of unlimited energy and power. Of course, they don't mention that they want to use it as a weapon, but that comes later. Until then, we get some really fun, light, Tony Pepper stuff, and I actually really love it. I did too, you know, because of the way that women are frequently sexualized in these films. Now, six years later, I'm looking at the way that Pepper is dressed in this scene, and I'm like, alright, does she need to be in Daisy Dukes? But at the same time, I realized this is the first time we are ever seeing Pepper dressed down so far in this film franchise, and so it's really nice to see her outside of business clothes for once, especially when she's in her boyfriend's penthouse. And the scene taking place in the penthouse really interesting, especially because Coulson overrides Stark Tech to take control of everything and interrupt this moment. That Coulson is able to do that at this point, and doesn't seem to be able to do that earlier on. They need Stark's help to be able to work as S.H.I.E.L.D. It's really, I don't know, it's an interesting juxtaposition. There's also the moment that I really love, because the Avengers Initiative said, no, we don't want Tony Stark, and now suddenly they do. Why is that? Because it's so dangerous at this point, it's no longer about personality profiles. I really enjoyed that line and that distinction. Yeah, and it was a good way to walk back the conclusion of Iron Man 2, where he was told that he had been rejected as a candidate. So then we get the scene with Coulson and Cap, and that really doesn't do anything for me. It's cute, it's a little cloying he's a little fumbly and i appreciate all of it but at the same time so much of this colson loves cap stuff is so manufactured and forced into these handful of sequences i would say it was interesting to put two colson scenes where they flesh out his character back to back first he's talking to pepper and tony and we get those little background bits of pepper talking about this cellist that he's with and she knows his first name is phil and tony's like his first name is agent and now we see him fanboying over Captain America, which I agree. I don't feel that that's in his characterization anywhere else in any of the other films or in the 50 episodes that I watched in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. The Loki scenes remain kind of boring and unspecial. It's unfortunate because I do think that Tom Hiddleston gives a really tremendous performance. He's working with a lot of really 
what could be boring and silly material, and he's managing to make it lifelike and powerful and dynamic. He's a really complicated actor, and he gives a really great performance here. I agree. His performance isn't the problem. This is another scene where there's little seeds where you could see that it is potentially that Loki is being influenced. The other, as the person that Loki interacts with in these scenes, is referred to as, says that Thanos put the scepter in Loki's hand, once again suggesting that this is in some ways something that was done to him, not entirely Loki behaving within his own character. I do think, though, that Loki probably signed up for this thinking he could handle it. Loki seems like somebody who would run toward a more powerful figure in a fight, I wonder if he thought he could handle Thanos and ultimately couldn't, especially because at this point they had no idea what they were doing with Thanos. Thanos was just this twinkle in their eyes where they were just forcing him all over the place. Most of his appearances don't make any sense in terms of his later character. It's kind of an interesting map to try and navigate. Another thing I loved in this scene was in the background, if you pay attention, you can see one of the Leviathans from the Battle of New York later floating ominously in the background. I think that's some really cool foreshadowing. And then from floating aliens to floating superheroes, we transition from here to the helicarrier. It's called the helicarrier because it can carry hella agents. Yeah, yeah. I actually thought this scene was so important because I feel like this is the first time we get a sense of who Steve was. Because this is the first real interaction he has with more than one person at a time in the present. Yeah. He has an interaction one-on-one with the nurse, then he has an interaction one-on-one with Nick Fury at the end of Captain America. He has an interaction one-on-one with Nick Fury, then an interaction one-on-one with Coulson here. This is the first time he's meeting a bunch of new people. He meets Tasha and Bruce, and it's just that core of who Cap is. It's who Steve is that he immediately tells Banner that he doesn't care about the other guy. I thought the way Banner starts this scene is a little strange, though. It almost feels like he's just stumbling around by himself on the surface of the helicarrier. Who let him out of their custody and just wander around by himself? I don't believe he's in anybody's custody. I believe he's here as a consultant. I think they're trying to show him some respectful level of autonomy. I'm sure there's no government secrets that are readily available anywhere publicly that they would have to worry that he could get his hands on. Although, frankly, the idea that he could steal a jet is a little scary. And we later know that he does. I guess I more meant an escort, but yeah, and, and he wouldn't really... You're surrounded by S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. Security isn't really a factor right now. Everyone who is here right now is here for a reason. And speaking of S.H.I.E.L.D. as an institution, there's a really lovely sweeping scene over the bridge of the helicarrier that has some great Epcot-like music from Alan Silvestri showing us the whole staff. And I'm looking out over these people, and I'm like, that's a ton of ladies. That's a ton of people of color. I really appreciated that attention to detail. There have been times watching these films where I've been like, every extra is white. Why is every extra white? So especially... A bunch of soldiers, high-level soldiers, that are going to interact with our superheroes. I appreciated seeing diverse faces among those extras. Absolutely. A question that we've asked ourselves is, are we actually approaching the diversity of these films strongly enough? One of the first ideas we had for this project was, do you see you in the MCU? A question of just what kind of representation the Marvel Cinematic Universe has. By the third film, there was no question. There wasn't much. The answer early on was a resounding no. There wouldn't have been much to talk about. Yeah, and we're really seeing a lot more here already. One of the background S.H.I.E.L.D. agents that we see that comes into play immediately in this scene is an agent known as Sitwell, who we were actually introduced to in Thor, who himself is uh, Latino. 
and will continue to be a recurring element in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. right up through The Winter Soldier, where he is revealed to be one of the HYDRA agents. Agent Jasper Sitwell is actually the agent who alerts them to Loki's presence off in Germany, and that's what pushes us into the next sequence of action for the film. It's as if they thought to themselves, the audience might have forgotten that Selvig and Barton are in this film by now, so they give us a strong amount of these two characters. It was important to see these guys possessed. We had gotten to know them in Thor, one better than the other, and it was a juxtaposition to see them be evil here. So, getting to see the damage they can do, Selvig's enormous brain and Barton's spy expertise and marksmanship as weaponry, this was just a really great move on Whedon's part to make us understand just how scary it is when one of the good guys goes bad. Yeah, one of the things that I noted with this is Barton being such a valuable asset to the villain makes it clear why he would be such a valuable asset to the Avengers later. Absolutely. That was the point I was trying to hammer out before, but I just had trouble uh, getting the bullseye. It's also interesting because we're going to get a lot of questions of how dangerous it is when the Hulk goes bad later on. We got the question of what happens when an Iron Man suit goes bad in Iron Man 2. This idea of what happens when the Avengers are the bad guys is a repeated theme and a repeated motif. It's as if they knew they were going to do civil war at some point. Hmm. Once we see Loki get his, you know, power mojo on in this sequence, it's so much different than Loki and Thor. The more we talk about this movie, the more undeniable it is I might have called for the retcon myself. Yeah, I think there's ways in which he is and is not the same Loki. I think, unfortunately, the sequence where he gouges out a guy's eye, the way that he, like, grins while he's doing that, I I feel there's more of Loki enjoying that than there is the scepter, but it's still way a lot more violent a lot more chaotic than anything that we've seen him do on Earth so far. So then we get the guy who's able to stand up to Loki. Loki's able to use the staff to make an entire audience of people kneel before him as his subjects, and this man just refuses to kneel. And Loki's like, you will kneel! And the guy's like, I had men like you try to make me kneel before. And the guy's just not having it, and it's his strength of self. It's who he is, refusing to kneel before this man that's able to stop him from kneeling before Loki, I guess. And that's a tenet of Marvel Comics. Marvel Comics love the idea that a person's willpower is so great it can overcome evil. And then, just like it's trying to make me cry, Cap comes in with the save at the last second, because as Cap puts it, the last time somebody tried to make people in Germany kneel, he had a problem with it and came over then, too. Yeah, it's a cute moment. I recently learned that a lot of this Germany stuff was filmed in Canada, though, so that definitely put a different spin watching this. That's absolutely amazing to me. Ontario, Vancouver, Berlin. Basically. Cap isn't there too long before Iron Man shows up. Yeah, it's, of course, an amazing introduction from Iron Man. Very loud, very flashy, as always. Finally, Cap is meeting his second Stark. Yeah, it's a really cute moment, the Mr. Stark captain. Uh, then when they're on the plane together and Tony is making all of his pop culture references, I turned to Nico and I said, this isn't the first time that Steve Rogers has been on a plane with a Stark making pop culture references, making him uncomfortable. And not getting them at all. At all. 
So once the lightning and thunder starts rumbling, it's really amusing because Loki can tell he's in for it. But Iron Man and Captain America don't really understand what's about to happen. At this point, they think they're fighting a crazy guy with too much power who came through a doorway, calling himself Loki. I don't know that they truly believe they are fighting gods yet. Yeah, you said uh, the thing a moment ago about Loki knows he's in trouble. Tom Hiddleston's face when Thor pops in is such genuine terror. It was a really great performance. I don't know if that's... I don't know if that's the real Loki cutting through the Scepter's influence or what we're supposed to see it as, but it's so genuinely shook, it made me laugh. And it's backed up with strength by the fact that Thor gets Loki out of there in an instant. He's not there very long at all. Once Thor decides he wants his brother back, he's taking his brother. We get that dumb quip from Iron Man, I have a plan, attack. It just doesn't do it for me. It's a little weak. And it just shows that Tony isn't really ready to be an Avenger. They need him. He is part of the team. But he's really not ready to be an Avenger yet. Yeah, I didn't like the cap line either before he jumps out of the plane. There's only one god, ma'am, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't look like that. That's so uber-Christian. I understand that's probably just part of the character, and it's something I need to accept. But it, it just smacks me so hard every time I hear it. Speaking of smacked so hard, I really find this scene between Loki and Thor amazing. Because this is, as far as we understand, the first time Thor is seeing Loki since he believed his brother died. And the thing he says to him is, Loki, come home! He doesn't say, Loki, come face justice at the fate of my hammer! He says, Loki, come home. He misses his brother. Yeah, everything about this scene reads, you know, we had said during the Thor episode, or I said during the Thor episode, that... A lot of Thor feels like rich people drama. A lot of this scene read for me as a teenager finding out they're adopted and running away from home and joining a gang. Even the stuff like Loki saying, I remember you dropping me into an abyss. Uh, false. You purposely fell. And then Thor being like, who showed you this power? It came across very, who gave you the drugs? It's, it's... It's such human drama, yet in Shakespearean language. What kind of drugs did you take? A Thanos like that? Where did you meet a Thanos like that? You're not my fucking brother. All of it. I completely see it. I really do see that level of it there. But the next part of the scene, as much as it's necessary, as much as I love it, as much as it's part of it, I actually really hate this Marvel team-up style beat em up If you've been checking out our other show, X's for Podcast, you'll know that we've complained that in the 70s Marvel team-up titles, heroes punch each other despite vaguely recognizing each other all the time. It gets so annoying. And I kind of feel like I don't know why these two don't kind of take a second before they keep wailing on each other. And then Cap comes in, and he doesn't make it better. Well, unfortunately, from what I read, that's actually in major part studio influence. When Joss was brought in to write and rewrite this script, he was only given a few specific edicts, one of which being the Battle of New York at the end, the other specifically being a battle amongst the heroes themselves in the middle of the film. So this was literally a requirement from the beginning of doing the Avengers, that we see a fight here in the middle with the Avengers fighting amongst themselves. Wow, it's like they really wanted to get everybody ready for Civil War or something. Or something. And as great as this fight is to watch, it honestly feels like it runs a little too long. I kind of felt like, okay, 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 Loki's right there, you're making Loki happy, you're making Loki happy. Yeah, I kept waiting for Cap to show up too. I checked the timestamps, and it's specifically only three minutes that this fight takes 
but it's a really stretched out three minutes. I don't think there was even enough to to fill that. I never would have believed you that this fight was only three minutes long. And yeah, I agree with you. I don't think there is enough to fill three minutes. And I never would have believed you this fight is only three minutes long. Yeah. Well, guys, it seems like we just have so much to say about the Avengers that we're going to have to split this one into two. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. So until we resume this movie where the heroes are finally all in one place, albeit still not quite getting along, Kevo, where can everybody find you? At Kevo Reilly on Twitter and Instagram. You can also check out our amazing comic Riot Squad over at KidRiotComics.com where it's on its second season along with its sister title, Capes and Boots. Feel free to check out my music project, Action Duo, at Facebook.com slash Action Duo where I make throwback R&B with my buddy Adam. And don't forget to check me out on Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I also have a few other amazing shows on this network like Now and Again where I take a look at Now That's What I Call Music with my best buddy Chris, as well as X's for Podcasts where Kevo, our boyfriend Jonah, and our buddy Kyle and I all take a look at classic X-Men comics in the 1970s. Feel free to take a listen at the other shows here on the Cage Club Network, as well as take a look at the Patreon, where you can help support these amazing programs. Yeah. So until then, guys, make ours marvel, and we'll talk to you soon. Woo!